Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. Little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We need your support. The Tortoise Shack relies entirely on you to keep the show on the road, mics on, lights on and conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. The simplest way to do that is to click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is at the top of the pod right now. So while you're listening, give us the 90 seconds it'll take you to click in, find the level that suits your budget and help keep this show on the road. It is the easiest bit of activism you can do and you'll get a ton of additional content including lots of exclusives, all of our podcasts in one consolidated feed and they're entirely plea free. So not only will you be helping keeping these microphones on, you'll be giving yourself the gift of not having to listen to me beg, but beg I must. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and folks, we are being rejoined by an old friend and I definitely don't mean Martin. Martin, uh, it's good to see you. you look freezing cold. How are you? Oh, it is, it is, you know, I wasn't born for this weather. I was born for a villa in Spain and one of these days... I will end up there. <laughs> oh, we are or, or in the fucking concrete underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that's much more likely, folks. <laughs> we have the lads with not, not two pennies to rub together and he thinks we're going to get a villa in Spain. Um, look, I just want to say a big thank you to everybody for the uh, feedback on the last couple of podcasts we've done on Gaza. There's another one coming this evening. Um, so we'll continue to cover events as best as we can. And, and I'm, undoubtedly it'll come up in, the, in this conversation as well but um, uh, we are as I said rejoined uh, long time listeners will be well aware of this man but uh, let's not undersell him he is one of the best writers one of the most uh, Roy Wits Martin I would say and, and one of the um, one of the, the, the most how do I put it forensic in his analysis of what's happening in, in US politics and what it means beyond their borders because quite often they don't understand that there's a world beyond their borders uh, and so he so John John Schwartz from the Intercept rejoins us John it's great to talk to you how are you keeping pal well I am pretty good all things considering and you are absolutely right like everyone watching America from the outside like wondering if we realize that there is a world outside the United States the answer is no like, I am one of the most sophisticated Americans in the sense that I have looked at a map once or twice. <laughs> uh, so I'm really leading the pack. But the rest of us, honestly, uh, you know, we, we've heard that there may be people in the rest of the world, but that remains a rumor that has yet to be proven. Yeah, and and I suppose, look, look. first and foremost, we should start with the fact that, look, we're probably recording this, who knows, but the time this is finished, you'll probably be even kicked off Twitter again. Um, I know it happened to your colleague, Ken Clipstein, as well, and he was back on. Uh, it, in a way, I put it to you, John, it might be a sweet release for us all if we just get thrown off in, in the next little while. Yeah, it would be wonderful if Twitter could just somehow explode or implode or be incinerated in a way that would set us free. Like, I would love for there to be something like Twitter. You know, I, uh, like, I, I do not consider it to be wholly negative. I think there are many wonderful things about Twitter, one of which is that it allows the lunatics who run the world to demonstrate to us who they actually are, because, like, they just get on Twitter and say things where you're like, I've been thinking about it, and there are a lot of people who just need to be killed. And, and you're like, don't, don't you have PR people who are supposed to stop you from... Uh, telling the world about how you see things. But anyway, so I would love for there to be something like Twitter, but not this one. Not this one owned by Elon Musk. Uh, not we're, this one. We're rubbernecking. Yeah, so, 
we're, we're really rubbernecking Twitter at the moment. It is yeah. a car crash. It's a house fire. It's it's all of it's a train crash. Um, you know, it's also compulsive watching. Uh, you have to watch it out to the end. Now, when it does eventually go pop or plop or whatever it is, there will be a shift to something else, and there will, of course, the 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 medium of doing this of of being able to talk to people all over the world and see how utterly shitty the incumbents are, and that those looking to get in are just as bad. So just yeah. So so my my hope is that. You know, that will come to pass. Either there, Twitter itself will collapse or Musk will have lost so much money that he has to sell it to a consortium of Canadian banks. <laughs> like, 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 all of our, like all of our apartments in, in, in Dublin currently. <laughs> we and our lottery, Tony. <laughs> yeah, actually, they all, like, it's, it's, it's astounding. Like, uh, we, 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 we do find a lot of can- Canadian pension funds are charging extortionate rents in Dublin at the moment. But, um, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, John. It's, it's, it's honestly it's, true. It's, it's and they own, there's a Canadian pension fund owns our national lottery. It's uh, look, it's money for old rope, but look, just just on on the entire freedom of speech, and because it is, um, it is something that's thought about avowedly. This is an American value, you know. Other countries will talk about um, freedom of speech as maybe a qualified right, you know, that you have. It goes, to, you know, if you start inciting hatred, or if you if you um, if you are bringing uh, danger to certain minorities or whatever, that there there will be issues with it. But it's it, it it's very much sort of this kind of you know don't fuck with it in the U.S. terms, and yet we see that it is becoming more and more weaponized. Have you got any thoughts on how that has been, how that's playing out, and and is is it is it just because it's I don't, know, I don't want to say left versus right because you don't really have a left versus right. You just have you just have a, a, a head case a, a head case versus a more polite head case. But you know you what what where do you see it? Yeah, it's a super duper complicated issue and one that is interesting to think about, especially because it's never discussed in any kind of serious way in the United States. Like, first of all, I am American in the sense that I did grow up with that perspective on free speech, you know, that it, that it is of like supreme value. And that's why it is in the First Amendment to the Constitution. And I still do feel that way for the most part, but no one ever discusses what what would we actually want the world to look like that would allow people to engage in free speech. And you can't have a world in which we say, well, everyone has has a right to free speech, but all the mechanisms for engaging in that speech are run by billionaires. You know what I mean? Like that that – you can't have you can't have a you can't have a public forum privately owned. Exactly. And so when when you look at Twitter, when you look at Facebook, when you look at all of these places, these are gigantic multinational corporations run for profit, supported almost purely by ads, owned by some of the richest human beings on earth. Like that on its face is obviously not going to be a venue for free speech. And you know, what I would like to imagine as a like like America that truly believes in free speech is that there would be uh, tons and tons of newspapers, tons and tons of like community radio stations, like tons and tons of libraries, you know, where people can inform themselves before they start talking. And th- that would be free speech that I would really uh, 
work my life to create and then defend. But this form of like corporate nonsense of this this uh, preposterous sham of free speech that is much more difficult to get behind. Do you think? You know, sometimes I think, and I'm just wondering, would you be of the same opinion that we have spent, like, the pinnacle of humanity, thousands and thousands of years, and we've got to the stage where everything we use is simply to sell you shit you don't want. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it is sad for humanity. No, it <laughs> it really is. And uh, as someone once said, you know, you can never get enough of what you don't really want. And... We have these enormous industries that are devoted to making us think that we want this garbage that, you know, we finally give in and we buy and then we get it and we're like, I'm just as sad as I was before. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're my meaningless vacuous life will be filled if I can if I can only have the latest X, Y or Z. But but and I, ex- I accept that some of the greatest minds, unfortunately, are working on that. But some of the greatest minds, John, there are, would be uh, the people who and here's my here's my my really clever segue. Uh, the Ivy Leaguers. <laughs> Do you have a problem with them, Mr. Ivy Leaguer yourself? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting question. I wonder where I went to college. I wonder if anyone would like to ask me where I went to college. Where, John, uh, John, will we, will we, the, for on behalf of the listeners, we don't ask questions that we all, if we don't know the answers. You, you went to Yale, John. We know. I, I did. Like, oh, I, 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 I wouldn't have brought that up myself, but since you say, uh, I did. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I went to Yale and I learned. I have to tell you, like from the inside, it was a very valuable experience because. I saw that, uh, first of all, they are places much more of indoctrination than education. And as I experienced, the education at Yale was actually pretty shoddy. You know, the, the, all the professors for their careers were working on books, and they didn't care that much about teaching the kids, and it showed. So the education itself was bad, but the indoctrination was top-notch, like really <laughs> extremely well-performed. And it is bizarre the degree to which America, which is this gigantic country, 330 million people, 3,000 miles across, the political system is dominated by the Ivy League, and not just the Ivy League, like Harvard and Yale. And I wrote this piece where I went through and pointed out that uh, from the 1988 to the 2016 elections, so that's like 32 years of presidents, uh, every single one had gone to the Ivy League. The one person uh, who had not gone to Harvard or Yale, like so 28 of those years were people who went to Harvard or Yale. Uh, four years was Donald Trump who went to the University of Pennsylvania, also <laughs> part of the Ivy League. And and the streak was broken by Joe Biden. Uh, but it, it's, it's amazing. Like, like, Eight That's, of the nine no, 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 I need to push in and defend uh, Biden. There were no Ivy Leagues uh, colleges when. <laughs> that, is, that is correct. The, the Ivy Leagues were it to, was established he, in like the, you know, the 1700s. He, he, so. had to, he had to fight. What was his name? Remember the guy he had to fight? Like, Corn Pop. And Corn Pop was a bad dude. Was, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, sorry, John. I, I, but do, do, do continue because I think this is fascinating because we see it in the UK in terms of a lot of old Etonian boys fighting uh, across we uh, see it here too I know no, no we we'll, we'll get we'll, 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 we'll get we'll get there as well but you know we just just it's it's in the US you know it's the this bastion of democracy you know it, it John just 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 bring on the story a little bit for us if you don't mind 
Yeah, well, so as I was saying, like like the political system in terms of presidents is dominated by Harvard and Yale. The Supreme Court used to be all nine members had gone to, to law school at either Harvard or Yale, and now there's one member who went to Notre Dame. So it, it's incredible. It's astonishing. Uh, again, like in this gigantic country with this enormous amount of talented people, that there's this very tiny aperture through which you can enter into the halls of power. And so I thought that was crazy uh, when I looked at it and it made me think of my own time there and how I had absorbed the kind of uh, Harvard-Yale worldview, which is that honestly, you know, human beings are pretty stupid and uh, they need to be guided and massaged and uh, taught where to go by their betters. And I experienced this like I tell a story in this article about the beginning of the Gulf War in 1991 when I was a student. And this the, it began at nine o'clock on January 16th. And George W., uh, George H.W. Bush, uh, George W.'s father, uh, gave a speech about how the war had begun and we were bombing Iraq. And at that time, there was no internet, like people didn't even have TVs in their rooms. And so there was one TV in the common area in my dorm. And to be able to just find out what was going on, I went there and there was only one person who was there in the room before me watching. And she was not a student at Yale and she was not a professor at Yale. Uh, she was a woman that I knew because she worked in the dining hall and she was from New Haven. And it, as I say in the piece, like if, if, you know Yale and New Haven. Like that means if you're working in the dining hall, like, like you're either Italian American or African American. And she was black. And I found out from her that her son was in the Marines and was stationed in Saudi Arabia. And that is why she was watching. Like she had this very, 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 very direct connection to this war. Uh, and she was terrified. Like, like I had never seen anybody. Like she didn't say this, but, uh, you know, she, she people have forgotten now, but there was all of this propaganda before the Gulf War about how this was like like the third or the fourth most powerful army on earth that Saddam Hussein, Saddam Hussein had, and we were going to face this. You know, this yeah, yeah, this <laughs> incredible. No, like in their defense, they 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 know exactly how powerful they were because they sold them all the weapons. They, they sold them, sold all that, and. Uh, Bill, the comedian Bill Hicks, like like one said, like maybe they are the fourth most powerful army on earth. But after number three, there's a big drop off. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, so there've been all this propaganda about how like, like this is going to be like 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 a World War II style battle in the desert, and it was going to be this like incredible struggle. Will America be able to beat Iraq? And so uh, she was rightfully terrified that her son was about to die, and. Uh, so I was struck by the fact that, you know, <laughs> that there were no students, there were no professors there who cared enough to watch. I was struck by the fact that I had talked to a friend of mine, uh, before the war had begun about how, like, like, would we be willing to fight in this war if it gets so serious? Because we believe the propaganda too about, uh, you know, like maybe they're going to have to start drafting people out of Yale. And I remember telling my friends, you know, that's, it's really moot because if it gets to the point where they're drafting people out of Yale, like the people who run America are going to wrap this war up because they don't care enough like, to I, actually I, sacrifice I, their I, own I, children. I don't, I don't want to be clear. This does not reflect kindly on you, John. <laughs> it, 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 it does not. And the part that does not reflect kindly on me the most is that – 
And I have thought about this for the last 30 years, and I don't think I've ever said anything about it publicly because it is something that fills me with like excruciating shame, is that honestly, when I saw the bombing of Baghdad, there is a part of me and a pretty significant part of me that was thrilled, like found this incredibly gratifying because I didn't know anything about the Middle East at that point. I didn't know anything about this specific war, but I had just somehow absorbed a sense through the U.S. media and going to Yale that there were like all these like dusky foreigners out there somewhere in the vague outside of America. And they were causing trouble and they weren't doing what they'd been told and we needed to teach them a lesson. And so, as I say, there's a part of me that found that like, you know, at last, you know, the troublemakers are being dealt with. And uh, so it was it was gratifying to me and thrilling to me. And, uh, you know, then I got older and learned something about reality and have been ashamed of that ever since. But I'm glad I experienced it because I think that is absolutely 100 percent the way that the people who run America experience the world. Like they really do see the world as something that is theirs to control, theirs to run. You have these uh, people who, you know, look human, but they they are not quite as human as you and me. And especially, you know, these these people who go to these elite institutions, they absorb those attitudes unconsciously, I assume, as I did. Uh, but I believe like like what I felt is what they feel. And so, as I say, uh, I was kind of hesitant to write about that and reveal that truth about myself. But I am very glad that I experienced it because I think that I, I do understand how they see the world because that's how I saw it. It is. And it is replicated everywhere. I mean, that's replicated in the UK. It's certainly replicated here in Ireland. And there might be a little difference in, in Ireland that that's been re replicated for a very long time by religious run schools, you know, by Catholic schools. I mean, famously, the, the Catholic schools uh, were what we consider Ivy League. They tell them, you are the leaders of the world. You are the leaders of this country. You must take. And they're very blunt about it. Mark, can I tell a joke about um, that uh, Russell Carroll Kelly tells? Um, so, uh, not Russell Carroll Kelly, how dare I? Uh, Paul Howard, who writes as Russell Carroll Kelly, to, um, he, so he writes this parody of what it is to be like a, you know, an elite, uh, Southside Dubliner who goes to rugby schools, these, these elite schools. And he was actually invited, genuinely invited to go and give a speech at Blackrock College to the, to the, to the team as they were being led out and everybody's chanting, everybody's there, the hall is full. It's like a scene from Hogwarts, except for everybody's, you know, fists are thumping and they're ready to go bait the shite out of the, the opposition. And he gives the speech, complete parody, and he says, get out there, this is the Senior Cup final. After today, you'll never have to work a day as hard as this in your life. <laughs> and they lifted the roof off, John. <laughs> so, so, and that, that, like, he tells that story himself. So, yes, we, we're not immune to the Ivy League uh, idea in, uh, in, in, in Ireland, but it's certainly been, um, 
it's a different it's a different scale you know it does actually extend to one university in in California as well and you make that clear in your piece but i'm just oh yeah we we've, we've also got to get rid of stanford yeah like, once yeah. we're done with the ivy league we'll we'll all go to california and yeah. burn down stanford uh, so look why not we have like it's full carthage style but but just on because it's kind of that leans into what we're where where the US is facing you know what's the there's this awful phrase that where they keep saying about Joe Biden don't compare me to the almighty compare me to the alternative now with the Iowa caucuses coming we know uh, Trump is a 50 50 point lead we know he's you know there's Washington uh, Washington um oh sorry uh, WAPO polls and New York Times polls that are showing that he's you know he's he's winning uh, hand over fist in in states where he lost previously and um, there seems to be this this kind of thing of like you know the more he's indicted, the more he's in trouble. That it's he's gonna he's gonna garner more votes. But here's the real question: Does it actually matter now anymore about America, or because this is empire in decline? I put it to you. I think you're completely right. I I don't know what the answer is, and I have no idea what is going to happen in in 2024. I've I've given up trying to figure. Like, as soon as Trump was elected, I was like, uh, I don't know. I don't understand this. <laughs> I'm not, not going to try to preach anything. Who knows what is going to happen this year? Who knows who is going to be president of the United States in January of 2025? Uh, any country that has a political system that is this calcified, where it can only come up with Biden and Trump as the two <laughs> potential choices, is clearly a country in decline. And uh, it's quite possible, you know, I've always looked at the history of the end of the British Empire, which really required World War II to happen. Like, they, there had been some blows struck against the British Empire before World War II, but World War II was the end of it pretty much. And uh, by the time World War II was over, you know, it was clear that they were going to lose most of their possessions across the world. Uh so while America is in decline, as the British Empire was, I do think we may not live through what is necessary for the U.S. empire to end. You know, like, like empires in decline create conditions naturally where there are all kinds of potential cataclysms. So I see the role of people like me in the United States, like just trying to manage, like trying to create conditions where the U.S. empire can decline without destroying humanity. And uh, like, that's a pretty strong statement, but I do think it's absolutely true. Like what kind of cataclysm would be necessary for the U.S. to accept even just a diminished role? Like not like we have to give up all of our power, but just like, like a rational decline. It's very hard for me to imagine how that happens without us taking everybody else. Fascinating question because we know it's happening slowly. We know there's talk of the de-dollarization. We see the BRICS um, countries adding countries to it as they go. You know what we used to do, what used to call derogatorily that the non-aligned countries turns out they're doing okay now. And you know we've seen situations whereby this has happened, and we only have to look to our nearest neighbor to realize. That's an empire that, that that was an empire, you know. Um, as you said, they, they they needed World War Two to went through, but at least when they finished World War Two, they came out with the NHS and had a good health service and 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 had some and the war- Beatles, you know, yeah, it's like yeah. that, that was part of the end of the empire too. Yeah, but, but I, I, go I, ahead. I kind of dis- disagree with both of you, to be honest. Um, I think the empire is particularly when we t- 
talk about the US, the empire has been in decline for a while. And is, is Joe Biden any better or worse than Obama was? You know, if you Joe Biden, if you Obama'd up Joe Biden, would it make him a better president? No, they, they don't. Their politics is all pretty much the same. It's just, particularly on economics, particularly on foreign policy, it's pretty much just all the same. You know, there are subtle differences, but from outside uh, looking in, there are very little. Nor do I think that the, the empire has to decline with a bang. I, I, I simply don't. I think empires can peter out too. And I, in fact, historically, empires do peter out. That is what happens. <laughs> they just disappear. Um, there may be some conflict at the end. All empires become narcissistic at the end. That's an interesting thing, I think. And in that I think America has become an extremely narcissistic country. Well, uh, I, I think we've always been uh, <laughs> an incredibly narcissistic country. But I, I agree that it's gotten worse. It, it has gotten worse. You know, the question of like, like can, can the U.S. empire just peter out? Like, I would like to believe that. But I don't know. You may see things more clearly from outside America, uh, like, like because I suffer from the same, you know, the, like when you're inside a place, it's very difficult to see it, even if you are conscious of the fact that you may not be getting a clear view from the inside. But nonetheless, just just my experience of living in America, of knowing America, like knowing Americans, you know, knowing the people that I went to college with, as we were talking about, I do not see it in us to have the capacity to like just be gracefully exhausted mm. and maybe i mean it from a kind of a, an international flu i think he'll all kill each other i think he'll have a oh. war but for the rest of us <laughs> no no I, i'm absolutely deadly serious about that i think you'll kill each other uh-huh. but i think the rest of us are pretty safe well you know i mean you have to understand like like th- that probably for the re- you know from the perspective of the rest of the world is a best case scenario uh uh I just have to say, you know, you have to remember, like, like those two factions when we're when we're having the civil war and trying to kill each other, you know, part of that will be vying for like who gets the nuclear weapons. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I just don't, I, it's just very difficult for me to imagine how we slowly deflate. Uh, the other issue, and I kind of put it to you, and never mind but again. Okay, they they they're standing armies in the U.S. in many forms of militias, and Martin's right to point that out. It's, I suppose it's such a heavily armed country, but when empires in decline, as I as I said earlier, it's also taking out places where it's doing untold damage elsewhere. I mean, we only have to look across the globe to conflicts, and you know, realistically, America has never not been at war since World War Two, John. It's it's always been involved in war, and war is business in America still. And and that is that is something that you know doesn't get said enough. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely true. You, you may know that I think the president of Argentina told a story once about how he was talking to George W. Bush, and George W. Bush explained to him like, "Well, you know, like war is how the U.S. economy develops, and, and like that's that's what makes us so rich." And it's like, "Wow, that is uh, bracing to hear, but makes sense as the worldview of these people." And you can't say they're necessarily wrong, like without that constant stimulus of our giant war machine, 
you know, what would our economy be like? Uh, we, like we could stimulate the economy by, you know, building hospitals and you know, roads and nice things for Americans. But I, I, I believe it was Aaron Dahi Roy who wrote the, 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 the invisible hand of the market only works if you've got the free hand of the, uh, the, 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 the free hand of the American fist of military behind it. I've butchered the phrase, but you get the point. Yeah, if Thomas Friedman actually said something along those lines, you know, where he said, like, like you know, the free hand of the market has always been. Oh, that's right. It was. It was Friedman. And I'm yeah. talking and I'm talking about Aaron Dahiroy quoting Friedman. So, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. No. So, so it is it is amazing. Like, like there are people like this who do uh, see the world like that and are willing to tell you about it. But anyway, I mean, I don't I, I, I just don't think there's any way to know what the future holds. But as I say, I just see f- from inside America uh, that I have a difficult time for us to, to imagine us uh, gracefully letting go. Also, I think we should talk about this fact about a civil war in America and fascism in general, which is long ago I wrote a blog post that I, I still stand by today, which one one saving grace for America uh, may be that we are simply too fat for fascism. And that like, like to be (laughs) successfully fascist, you need a lot of, you know, like young, energetic people. And certainly Trump's base is like, like old and just everybody in America is too fat. Like, like to like, sure, we would like to kill each other, but, uh, there are so many good mid-level fast food restaurants. There's Chipotle, like just delicious. Like, do we really need to have the nighttime torchlit rally when we can go get you know, the burrito and chips special at Chipotle. So I, I don't know. That may be something that does keep us from killing our, you know, killing ourselves and killing everyone. There's just like so much delicious food to eat in America. I, I just think when you give everybody a gun, sooner or later, everybody's going to use one. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> that's a good point and uh, difficult to argue with. Uh, and you can definitely tell on the right, like they are ready for a civil war. Like yeah. they absolutely, they are yearning to have the opportunity to uh, crush everybody else. And uh, so I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but it keeps me interested in being alive. I can tell you that. Like, there's a lot of... Staying alive. Yeah, staying staying alive. (laughs) We had had, uh, Naomi Klein in here a few months ago, uh, and she was telling us that... um, uh, you know, one of the phrases she used, I think, was something along the lines of, again, paraphrasing that, you know, centrism sets the table, but fascism always gets to eat the dinner. Um, uh-huh. And I, when I look at the US, and you refer to the right being standing ready, I also th- I also look and say this, this uh, I, I happen to think, <laughs> I'm going to say it, Martin, uh, don't get mad at me till afterwards, uh, liberalism is a pox, John, because it's not, uh-huh. it's, it's, it's that, it's that, um, liberal wing of, you know, um, there's a, there's a poet in, in, in Dublin, Emmett Kirwan, who says, they'll let you have as much liberalism as you want, but if you start to mess with property rights, they'll beat you like a snare drum. <laughs> and, and the US is a beacon for that, for, for that in my mind. Am I, am I wrong? Is liberalism just, has, has liberalism just allowed this to boil up to this point whereby the left has actually left the stage entirely? Yes. Well, America, it's funny. Uh, you know, I grew up as a nice liberal. Like I, I grew up in that milieu uh, outside Washington, D.C. That is where I learned my first political lessons. That was what led me to like think that a place like Yale was worthwhile. It is what led me to 
be filled with this overwhelming tide of joy at seeing people outside the United States get massacred? So the answer is yes, you are absolutely correct about liberalism. Like I was that liberal. So as somebody who was that liberal, I, I can tell you, you're right. Like liberalism uh, has like, you know, has a, I prefer it to the current alternative, but that is what liberalism is certainly in the United States. And as far as I can tell, uh, throughout time across human history, you may know something that I've, uh, quoted before. And I think, uh, sent you guys, you know, there was this British, like, like liberal reformer who was, I think, a, a rector and maybe once a, he was just, you know, a politically significant figure in, uh, in England in the 1800s and like visited Ireland during a famine and wrote about like, it was horrible to see these white chimpanzees. Oh, that's yes. right. Yes, 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 yes. yes. And th this was liberal. That's liberalism. Yeah. Like that's what liberalism was in the 1800s. And it's not that different today. And so, uh, you know, in America there, you, know, you have that kind of liberalism and then you have the like to total lunacy of Trump and that's it. Like there is no left in America. Uh, left is like to the degree there is a left that is kind of developing. You can see that with the United Auto Workers, who have always been one of the most important unions in America for sure. But uh, they, you know, and they have come out for a ceasefire over Gaza. But you know, most significant unions in America, that's close to meaningless because you know they have so little power. But but, but John, do you not think that because of the the lack of impetus in politics, and and it's it, it's not just America. It's you know across the Western world, very stagnant politics across the Western world. Do you not think that labor movements are the way forward? In that you, it's much easier to build a union than it is to build a political party. Well, absolutely. I mean, if there is a future, it, it has to be in like in unions. Like that's it's always been the case, and it. I have a hard time imagining it ever being different. And that's why, you know, sort of the corporate government of the United States hates unions so much. It's not just because they're going to get, you know, an extra dollar per hour pay. It's because they are so democratizing and they allow people to learn uh, about the world. And people uh, may know this or may not, like at the March on Washington, the, you know, the famous uh, demonstration where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech, mm -hmm. there was the president of the UAW at that time. And the UAW funded uh, a lot of the costs of that demonstration. And if you go back and read that speech, Walter Reuter, um, Ruther, anyway, like he's been so forgotten as important as he was that, that I don't even know how to pronounce his name correctly. Uh, but he gave this speech that was really like it, it, like it holds true 100% today. And, you know, where he says that uh, – you know, sort of for the economic problems of America and the issues of racial racial justice are like are the same problem. Like he doesn't differentiate between the two of them, and he explains why. And so he was an extremely impressive figure who uh, died in a mysterious plane crash a couple mm -hmm. of years later. Weird, it, and it is strange. I mean, Jimmy Hoffa was once as well known as Kennedy. I mean, people mm -hmm. forget these things. Jimmy Hoffa and Kennedy were just as. I mean. Jimmy Hoffa was more famous than the Beatles. You mentioned the Beatles. He but, was more but famous I think, than I think, the Beatles. But I think, John, you've given me a great, a great expression there. I hadn't heard it before. The corporate America, uh, government of America. Because 
like right now, Ireland is this bastion of neoliberal capitalism because our tax evasion or tax avoidance network, you can't say evasion, you're not allowed to say evasion, it's not evasion. Trust me, folks, it's not evasion, it's just tax avoidance, okay? Um, I like to say, you know, by, by uh, you know, tax evasion is the poor man's tax avoidance. Exactly. <laughs> the crime is what's legal, my friend. Um, but but on the, on, we, we are in some Look, ways... there's a piece of paper right here uh, where we have it written, where the government wrote down that we don't have to pay taxes. So fair is fair. And we wrote that bill, of course. But but my point is, at some point, I am actually a a citizen of corporate America. Because right now, my economy is built on five large American companies that that um, use our... A little little island to use that what what I refer to as waffen pipes, which are like your your toilet pipes, John, um, to wash their money through, and we take a service charge off the top. And you know, even now, I only see in the last couple of hours the OECD, one of one of the big people we're supposed to pay attention to, said Ireland's going to be a big winner out of the uh, the global <laughs> move, the global move to to harmonise uh, uh, corporation tax rates because we've already got the Wavin pipes in place and we've shown people the way to do it. And and then again, go back a few years ago, and you know when people like uh, Donald Trump were complaining about how Ireland was, you know taking a slice of America's pie in a way that makes me an American citizen as well, because you know, it's the way it's been done is uh, American citizens, the wrong word, a corporate American citizen in a way, you know, and then I have to look and see what's happening in Gaza. I have to look and see what's happening to my friends. I was asked earlier today to give a comment uh, to a newspaper about a friend of mine who is now dead in, in, in Gaza. And I struggled with it, and I don't know if it'll go into the paper, because maybe it was a bit too angry. Um, But nonetheless, at some point then I have to then turn on the news and hear Anthony Blinken say, you know, that um, we want them to minimise civilian deaths. While while skipping um, the, the 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 checks and balances and just sending over more weapons to kill my friends, uh, it's it's a crazy situation. And uh, people in America seem uh, are the streets uh, at least a, bit, a little bit more woke than than your your corporate government. Uh yes, uh, I would say that uh, the, the issue of Israel and Palestine is much better understood in America than it has ever been before. And like, that's a pretty low bar because first of all, people had no idea that there were such things as uh, human beings called Palestinians. And so uh, like, just, just like, Oh, they're people, (laughs) you know, they, they're there and they exist. Like that's that bar we have cleared uh, in pretty big swaths of America. And I will tell you like, like for people, I don't know, like under 30, like, like they really do get it for the most part in the United States and uh, the U S and Israel have totally lost young people, young Americans. And so that is a big, big step forward. Um, but you are absolutely right. You know, you are citizens of corporate America and frankly, we would like to see a little more gratitude, uh, after, after all, all that we've done for you, but yes, I'm, I'm coming straight over there and I'm asking for I, I want I'm going to kick you out of your home and say I've been told that I'm entitled to because we because your taxes and we're we're doing such a good job managing your money. John, get out of that apartment. I want it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. And uh, I'd be hard pressed to say well, that doesn't seem fair. Um, but uh, you know, 
I, I, I don't know what to say. Like, like we have enveloped you in our particular system and you are absolutely participants in what is happening in Gaza. And it is, uh, I don't know. The Iraq war was bad, but there is something about this that is especially dirty, John. dirty and, and gnaws at your every moment of consciousness. And sometimes, you know, when you're asleep and dreaming, like it is, unbelievably grim and just just the cruelty and the monstrosity of it is different i I don't know it's hard to explain exactly why it is different because america has done so many uh i have to say for me john it has turned me from being mildly cynical about world politics into actually really hardened cynic about the capacity of world politics to do the right thing um, I don't think I don't think it exists, and I think that's kind of a bit of a revelation for people. Yeah, I would say even even for me, it has been something of a revelation. I actually am surprised that the United States has not told Israel to wrap this up. And I, you know, I I think you're correct that there's a very small difference between you know any presidents in the American system and what they can actually do, even if they wanted to do something akin to the right thing, but. Uh, I think Obama actually would have told Israel by now, like, like you've got to, this is too much. I actually would have let them massacre people for a while. He'd had, he'd had, but he'd already had a bad relationship with, with Netanyahu. Uh, Like he had a a well long established, you know, he was not, they did not, they had a enmity for one another. They did not get on. Whereas Biden had this silly thing of like, I've known Bibi for years and, you know, it, it's... Uh, well, you know, if Obama wanted to speak up, there is nothing to stop him. And that's why I would disagree with both of you in that he would he, have told the party line. He's still towing the party He did. He, he spoke up on, on a podcast recently, Martin, and it was kind of a little bit mealy mouth saying that he didn't do enough when he was president. There, go, he there we go. There we go. Um, and and uh, so, so, look, I just, I find the whole thing... John, again, and it's to pick on America, absolutely to pick on America, because America deserves a good kicking for this, because it wouldn't happen. This would not be happening right now if they decided, well, actually, we'll just attach conditions to the aid we're giving you. Right. Off you go. Yeah, you, you, you can't do anything you want with these bombs. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, I mean, there, there is a difference between Obama and Biden. And in a certain sense, it makes Obama look much, much worse because Biden doesn't know anything about Israel. Like he saw Exodus in like 1963 and like he hasn't learned anything since then. Uh, Obama does actually know the history and he was, you know, Chicago has a, you know, fairly vibrant like Arab American community that is involved in politics. And he moved in those circles, you know, when he was first getting started he absolutely knows the history, 100%. He knows the story. He knows uh, much, much better than Biden does what the reality is. And when he was in office, there probably was a part of him that was like, you, you know, like, we do need some kind of just settlement of this. But he just wasn't willing to fight for it. Like, he wasn't willing to use his political capital for it. And even if he had been willing to use his political capital, could he have done anything? Who knows? Because there's also Congress, which is, you know, not going to get on board with any kind of peace. Um, but anyway, so uh, 
I do like, like he's not going to say like, he's not somebody who's going to say anything now because he's a team player and, and he's going to be like, Oh, my dear friend, Joe, I don't want to make you know trouble for him. And I'm not president. He's president. I'm sure that's how he explains it to himself. Like, so he's not, he doesn't have that in him. I would never argue that Barack Obama is, you know, any kind of uh, hero or someone you should believe in, in that sense, but he does actually understand the issue. And so that's why I think if he were president today, he would have said like, you know, like that's, this is enough massacring, like, you know, you leave some people alive for the next massacre. Um, so that's, that's the truth of it. That's, it's extremely grim. There, there are times when who's president does matter to some degree. And I think this is one of those times. John, just one last question, and I know we're not going to get into the prediction game. You said you don't know where it's going, um, and I think that's fair. We don't, we even, and I actually, partly me, like there was this uh, phrase, We I don't know if you're aware that, like, you know, in the north of Ireland, Stormont is their, you know, their devolved government, and it's it's been down more often than it's been up since it's been established. And I, we asked someone foolishly the other day, said, well, do you need to get that up and running? And uh, and this is a member of the uh, Protestant from from the from a loyalist community said, oh, I don't care. It doesn't make a difference. Many ways, huh. <laughs> it doesn't make a difference what, what's going to, you know, whether you vote for Tweedledum or Tweedledee. But the slow, the slow ascent of fascism, and it is fascism, we have to call it what it is, um, and we we see it now. Is there any interest in America in stopping it above and beyond talking, you know, rhetoric around culture war issues? I think that there are people who have been politicized over the past, I don't know, eight years or so, uh, who do understand how significant the threat is of this. Are they willing to actually do what's necessary in terms of political organizing to try to stop it. Like, I just don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know what the future holds. I do know that, you know, a friend of mine has obtained uh, Australian citizenship <laughs> is looking towards the future. And was like, I got to get out of here. And I know I have another friend who is getting citizenship in France. Uh, my feeling is that they are both wrong in the sense that if things get very bad in America, uh, no place on earth will be safe. Uh, so <laughs> there's no point in trying to get out of here. But like, so that, that's, that's my perspective. Uh, I may live to, you know, like eat those words in a very concrete sense. Uh, you, you know, you guys might be the last place. I mean, that's, again, that's why I keep on saying like, save me a, a space oh, in the shed. And, we, we, and wait, Tony has the bedroom. Well, he said he'll do up the bedroom. I want to be, I want to be very clear. I want, I want to be very clear. <laughs> John, you're you're falling further down the pecking order now because you had you've been tardy in your attendance on the tortoise shack, you know. So we're gonna we're gonna have to look at this. It, it <laughs> might be give, a dark give house. And, yeah. <laughs> John, thanks Fair's for fair. coming. Thanks for coming on. And it it is interesting to look to the future. And it did actually strike me what we're talking so much about the future, and we talk about you know humankind. But there's a whole uh, planet there just ready, waiting to boil us. And that might be the thing that ends America and ends liberalism and ends everything really and truly that we know. And that might be the catalyst for change. It's not the catalyst we want, but at least it's not us bombing each other. Um, thank you for having this conversation, John. As always, really informative, uh, giving us a view on the 
the inside out from America, I have to say from the outside in, sometimes it's a sitcom, sometimes it's a drama, sometimes it's a tragedy, but it's always entertainment. Thanks, John. Yeah, no, that, that is what we are, like, we're great at war, but we're even better at entertainment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well uh, it's, uh, you know, we're going to use the old quote, the old quote to finish then, uh, history repeats, first as tragedy, then as farce. Then as farce, then as tragedy, then uh, ad nauseum. Yeah, good, good riddance to the US of A, folks. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.